Welcome everyone to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. We have a very special guest with us today, Lieutenant Colonel Harry T. Stewart, Jr. I'm going to start this interview off by reading the inside jacket of Colonel Stewart's book, which is called Soaring to Glory. I just finished the book, and it's one of the best books I ever read. So listeners, listen up, because you're in for a real treat with a living legend. Here's how the inside cover reads. The valiant fight for freedom in the air and dignity on the ground. He had to sit in a segregated rail car on the journey to Army basic training in Mississippi in 1943. But two years later, the 20-year-old African-American from New York was at the controls of a P-51, prowling for Luftwaffe aircraft at 5,000 feet over the Austrian countryside. By the end of World War II, he had done something that nobody could take away from him. He had become an American hero. This is the remarkable true story of Lieutenant Colonel Harry Stewart, Jr., one of the last surviving Tuskegee Airmen of World War II. Award-winning aviation writer Philip Handelman recreates the harrowing action and heart-pounding drama of Stewart's combat missions, including the legendary mission in which Stewart downed three enemy fighters. Soaring to Glory also reveals the cruel injustices Stewart and his fellow Tuskegee Airmen faced during their wartime service and upon their return home after the war. Stewart's heroism was not celebrated as it should have been in post-war America, but now his boundless courage and determination will never be forgotten. Thank you for your service, sir. Thank you, John. It's great to have you with us today, Colonel Stewart. It's great being here. First question for you. What do you hope this story will inspire in our listeners? Well, I, I try to point uh, my experiences to youth, and uh, I would hope that it would inspire youth to go ahead and follow their dreams, uh, follow their dreams with tenacity. And if they find that somewhere along the route there is that the dreams can't make fruition there, is not to be ashamed to go ahead and change and have a fallback position. I think when I say fallback position, I think of a lot of high school kids that I talk to, and they talk about becoming football stars or basketball stars. I tell them, number one, I said, you know, you're, you're fighting a hard game there because there's only so much room at the top. And I says, number two, suppose you have an Achilles tendon uh, rupture on you during the, what do you do then, you know, and you need that fallback position. And I guess I would say as an example, that's what I did. I wanted to be an airline pilot, but I didn't quite make that. So what I did, my fallback position was when I found out that that desire was going to evaporate there, uh, that I decided to go back to school, get my degree in mechanical engineering from New York University, and went up the corporate ladder from there, and everything worked out fine. Do you still remember the moment as a young boy, you were in New York, standing near, I guess, what is today LaGuardia? What do you recall from that moment? Well, it was... Uh, inspirational from the standpoint that it said, that's what I want to do. I want to sit up in that cockpit one of these days and I want to be able to fly this this plane around. And of course, it just about World War II came along and uh, I was able to uh, qualify as a uh, aviation cadet and got my wings and uh, became a, a second lieutenant and uh, went overseas and participated in combat in the uh, all-African uh, fighter group there, uh, the 332nd fighter group, uh, flying out of Italy uh, doing bomber escorts. Now, you guys doing bomber escorts, those were called the Red Tails, right? That's correct, yes. That was the identification, and uh, just as, do you have a picture here, there? And uh, that's the Red Tail there on the P-51, if you can see it. I sure do, yep. And uh, strictly that, uh, uh, that, had to do just with identification, that's all. All of the fighter groups that we had overseas there, uh, including the African-American fighter group, had distinctive tail markings so that uh, we didn't have to use radio. We got the radio silence, but tell by the visual uh, who was in that plane there or what group they were from. 
And you guys had built quite a reputation as uh, as bomber escorts. Am I correct? They were they were uh, literally asking for your uh, group. I uh, yes yes yes, and uh, uh, that I have to attribute to General Benjamin O. Davis, our leader there, and he um, uh, forbade us on the fear of court martial uh, to never never ever leave the bombers. And uh, that was our primary duty there, is to protect those guys uh, in the B-17s and the B-24s and to never abandon them. What was it like? When, describe for us what it was like when you went to the Tuskegee Flight School. What challenges did you face? And did that seem well, like it took forever? Yeah. Well, the challenge was, you know, to make it through each uh, event or each progress period uh, during the flying there. The uh, flying uh, was made up of four uh, different segments of two and a half months each. Uh, the first being pre-flight, which uh, did not actually involve any flying there, but learning navigation and uh, uh, all of the radio, uh, how to work the radio, Morse code, that type of thing. Uh, then going into the second phase was primary, where you actually start your flying, and that was with a two-wing, a biplane, the PT-17 Stearman, and we had 60 hours in that, and if you satisfactorily got through there, you went to the BT-13, which was a more advanced aircraft, 450, 450 horsepower uh, engine in it, and then the last phase, which was advanced flying was the AT-6, the American Texan, which uh, had a 650 horsepower engine and acted, uh, flew very much like a uh, fighter plane. And uh, after that, I, uh, I got my wings and uh, got my uh, second lieutenant's bars. I was all of 19 at the time, and I, didn't I have had a known how to drive a car. <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't know how to drive a car, but... Being from New York City, you know, you didn't need you a car. You didn't need it. <laughs> be a handicap, you know. Everywhere That's you right. needed to go, you could walk to. Exactly. <laughs> do you do you still remember your first solo flight? Yes. And very, very, what do you very, remember very from that? Much. What kind, what type of plane were you in, and what do you remember from that? Well, in that uh, was a, a PT nineteen uh, Cornell. It was a low wing, all plywood. Uh, Ranger inverted engine and uh, open cockpit and, uh, you know, the scarf and goggles and that type of thing. But anyway, uh, after about seven hours, my instructor asked me to taxi over to the wind tee. And when he said that, I, I figured this is it. He's going to let me go. And that's what he did. And uh, he got out and he fastened his uh, safety belt so that it wouldn't flap around in there without him in it. And uh, told me to go ahead and take it around and uh, just follow the lessons that I had given him. And I did it. And when I came back in, uh, he told me to take it around uh, again and then a, a third time. And that was it for the day. But of course, that first takeoff by myself was just the most exhilarating thing I, I think I've ever done in my life because I was in control, total control. I was a pilot of this aircraft that was taking off. My sister was a pilot. I'm not, I've never had that dream to go up in the air. I'd, I'd rather do 160 miles an hour on land. <laughs> okay. But my sister wanted to be a pilot. She took me up in a Cessna one time and feeling the bumps and everything else and then and then uh, uh, feeling the wind just about blow us off off the runway up on Long Island. We were trying to land at a, at a little airstrip they had out near Grumman. It scared oh, yeah. me to death. <laughs> okay, right. but but I appreciate the courage it takes to get up there just to fly, much yes. less the kind of courage that it takes to face somebody in the air who's trying to shoot you down and knock you out of the sky. And it takes a lot of courage to hold yourself together and keep going when you're facing the kind of racism that you faced as a young man trying to go forward. For some of our young listeners, what kind of challenges did you face race-wise uh, from the time you were a young man? Uh, wanting to go into the service? Well, the main problem was, uh, of course, the segregation itself. And the segregation meant that you'd be deprived of a lot of the uh, prime necessities that uh, uh, that you would normally, normally have. 
being from New York at the time, the neighborhood I grew up in, it was a totally uh, integrated neighborhood. I went to integrated school and uh, uh, integrated movies, restaurants, that type of thing. So uh, going into the service and going down uh, south there where uh, racism was institutional at the time there was, was quite a change in the life that, that I knew. But the idea was I kept my eye on the prize and the prize being, you know, being a pilot, getting to be a pilot and gaining my wings. So I, I subdued those uh, strong emotional feelings that you might have uh, in, in prejudice there in favor of uh, getting what was done in order to gain my wings. The way you told your story in the book was inspiring because there were, there were points, especially during the hazing process at Tuskegee, there were, there were points during that very brutal hazing process where some of, these, some of these other guys who were all trying to get to the top of the ladder so they could get their wings might have felt that they were not being fairly judged. And yes. you, that, that not happened not only once, that happened all the way through, all the way up to Las Vegas. But it always seemed that you were the one who said, you know, this is my performance. I believe I have been fairly judged. I can see why this guy made that decision. And yes. you were always pushing yourself to get better and not using that as an excuse. This is why I didn't score that well or this is why I didn't achieve that. It was always you pushing forward and saying, these guys were fair. I just need to get better. Exactly. Exactly. It was me. All right. And that was inspiring. That's the kind of heart that everybody needs. And it took a lot of heart for you to fight both wars, the war that you fought in the air and the war that you fought on the ground. And I know that a lot of people are inspired by your story, and they're going to be very inspired by Soaring to Glory. It's, well, thank you. it's a wonderful <laughs> book in, in a lot of ways. Yes. I think Philip Handelman did a great job. In, uh... Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. What are your fondest memories of flying with the Red Tails? And can you give us specific, some specific stories or anecdotes about that? I... I guess when I got overseas, my uh, uh, first bomber escort mission that I had, uh, I think I just had a, a couple of hours of transition in the uh, P-51. Uh, the operations officer came out after I was uh, at the field for about a day and gave me a manual about 50 pages thick, and it was all about the P-51 and uh, how it ran and that type of thing. And he said, study this. and. Uh, after I finished reading it for a while, he came back and he says, now I'm going to give you a cockpit check and a blindfold check. And he said, I'm going to put this blindfold on you and I want you to point out the various instruments that are called out. And then after I did that, he says, well, that's it. Take it. You've got to go. You know. So there was no instructor to show me how or anything like that. I had to use the uh, past experiences so I could transition into this uh, hot fighter plane, the P-51, which certainly was a, a wonderful, wonderful aircraft. But anyway, on that fat first mission I went on, uh, it was about, uh, I don't know, five or 600 bombers that uh, we were escorting. And these bombers, they were in trail. I guess uh, the trail must have extended maybe for 100 miles. And, uh, of course, the fighter planes, we were flying over a segment of these bombers. But as the bombers started riding, and I was flying tail end Charlie, I was thinking, of thinking and uh, being the last guy in the very last rear there. So I had a panorama view of everything that was going on in front of me there. When this bomber, these bombers met a certain atmospheric height there, they started pulling what we call these uh, vapor trails. And you see them up the planes, you know, today, pull these vapor trails. Well, each one of these bombers had four engines. So each engine was pulling a vapor trail times five or 600 of these planes. So it was a ribbon, just a ribbon right to the horizon. And then the fighter planes were circling above them. And in order to keep it with the same ground speed, they had this circle or 
weave over them there and uh, they were it was like a dollar sign going across the uh, uh, going across those streams there so it was a sight to behold and it was something that uh, I had never seen before and I will never see again because uh, no country will ever put up an armada air armada like we did in World War II and I think of today where one bomber can do all of the damage that all of the bombers did in uh, uh, World War II. And uh, as I said, it was an awe-inspiring sight to, uh, to see that. And it, it comes back every once in a while in my memory to, uh, to see that first sight that I saw going out on the bomber escort mission. One of the one of your red tail planes was a General Davis's plane had by request uh, written on the nose of the plane. I believe it was. Yes, and because yes. because he was very proud of your unit always being called up for escort. Exactly uh, by request. Exactly. I thought that picture was pretty neat. Yes. Yeah. During the same mission, when you took down three German planes, would you tell us about the fate of your fellow airman Walter P. Manning? And when you returned to base safely, what did you think had happened to him when he didn't make it back? And how long was it until you found out the truth? Well, uh, Walter, we were in a, as I had mentioned at the beginning of our uh, talk, uh, I said that Colonel Davis, uh, General Davis at the time there, had forbidden us to uh, leave the bombers. But uh, under certain circumstances, if it was declared that the bombers were in safe enough territory and they were out of harm's way, uh, we could be designated to go in what was known as a fighter sweep. And a fighter sweep would be looking for trouble, looking for targets of opportunity like other enemy aircraft or maybe traffic on the uh, barge traffic on the river or railroad trains or other rolling stock or something like that. Anything to impede the uh, uh, enemy as far as war effort was concerned. So seven of us were uh, sent on a... Uh, uh, fighter sweep, and it was around Wells Airdrome in Austria. Uh, we were attacked by a, uh, a group of German fighters, uh, Focke-Wulf 190s, and uh, in the fight uh, of the seven of us, three of us got uh, shot down. Uh, uh, one was not badly damaged. He was able to get back to friendly territory in Yugoslavia and landed there. Uh, another one of our uh, pilots that got shot down uh, was killed instantly. And the third one, uh, his name was Walter Manning. He was, uh, plane was disabled. He had to bail out. And when he bailed out, he uh, landed amidst a, uh, a mob uh, down on the ground of civilians. And uh, they took him and... Uh, uh, had him put in the local jail that they had. Uh, a couple of days later, or a day later, the, uh, some SS troops came in, SS German troops came in and started whipping up a frenzy of uh, hate uh, within the populace there. And uh, the bottom line is that uh, this mob got together and they broke into the jail, took Walter out, uh, beat him up, and uh, then lynched him. They hung him from a uh, lamppost. Uh, when I got back to the base, I didn't see this happening or anything like that. This was off to the side there, but uh, he turned up, all we know was missing, and uh, I think one of the guys had seen him bail out, but that was all. There's no other report from the Red Cross or anybody else as to uh, what exactly happened. And it wasn't until many, many years later, and I'd say when many, many years later, about five years ago, that the Austrian government uh, declared that they found exactly what happened to Walter Manning, is that uh, uh, he was executed by a uh, mob. The uh, government felt uh, that they needed to requite that situation there, and they decided to... Uh, expose, and they had the moral courage to expose exactly what happened, and uh, asked the United States, you know, to uh, please forgive the uh, citizens of the country for what had happened to uh, Walter Manning. And uh, they decided to have a memorial 
for him, and uh, the government invited me over to uh, uh, Austria, and that was just a year ago, April 1st, and uh, they had the memorial there, and uh, it was uh, quite a stirring and, and moving type of thing. Could you, Colonel, could you, Colonel, describe the can describe the day that you experienced your first air combat? Yes, that was also in uh, Austria uh, at the time, and we were on a fighter sweep, and I saw these uh, two FW 190s that were in front of me and kind of low. They did not see me evidently, and I was able to move up on them and had a what's some zero deflection shot. I just put my uh, uh, sight on them. I hit the one man, and uh, as soon as I hit him, I turned to the other, and uh, I hit him, so pieces flying off there, so I got credit for those two. But in the mean, just as that happened, I saw these white lights coming by my plane, and uh, I looked back, and there was a German fighter on my tail, and he had his sights right on me there, and I, I thought that I was gone because he was in just a perfect position to go ahead and knock me out of the sky. Uh, I panicked, I would say, and I dove the plane towards the ground to get as close to the ground as possible and uh, maneuver uh, on the ground there. And he followed me uh, down as such, and I started making this very, very tight turn on the ground and. Uh, all of a sudden, I looked back and I saw this big flame and uh, big explosion. And it was evidently the fighter that was on my tail there. And evidently, he over-controlled and lost control of the plane and went into the ground. So you heard the, the expression, God is my co-pilot. And I, I think that was the situation in my case because he had me dead to right. And uh, that was, I was, oh, by the way, I was given credit for him as uh, as though I had shot him down. So that's how I got the three victories. A few months ago, I did a story on the Flying Tigers of 1937-1938 and the specific training in their P-51s for taking out Japanese Zeros. Mm -hmm. What was your training for going against uh, Fock Wolfs or Messerschmitts? Uh, not anything... Uh, 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 specific as far as the uh, plane was concerned. When they talked about the Japanese Zeros, there were certain characteristics of the aircraft that you could take advantage of. Uh, with the uh, German aircraft there, there were a number of aircraft they had. They had the 109s, they had the uh, 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 190s, they had 262. And so all of them had different characteristics. So you just tried to figure out or uh, find out what is the uh, best way to uh, combat them. Uh, I think that a lot of uh, the victories that were scored during the war were people that didn't know that somebody was on their tail and was going to shoot them down. They usually got shot down by some unseen person or unseen aircraft there. So it was more or less go in and make a strike and get out of there. Right? I live not too far from where you were born. I live a little bit south of uh, Phoebus, Virginia. I live down in Virginia Beach. Okay. And I'm, I'm, a, I'm about two miles from the Military Aviation Museum uh, in Pungo, Virginia, which is really in Virginia Beach. Have you ever heard of that? No, I haven't. I, I, know, that, I know they would be arms open to you as a guest should you ever want to come. I would love that. Yes, I would. They've got, they have got two Focke-Wolf 190s. They have a P-51 Mustang. They've got all types of uh, World War II and World War I military aircraft. Uh, and it's a wonderful, wonderful museum. Uh, and a couple oh. times a year, they have uh, special shows. Uh, one of their summer shows is called Warbirds Over Virginia Beach. Okay. They, and uh, it, it's a fascinating place. It has really come of its own in the past 15 years. And I think you would really enjoy a visit. I'm sure I would. I don't know how much you'd enjoy standing in front of an, F, an F-190 Focke-Wolf because you had to do that once many years ago. <laughs> well, no, I admired those uh, aircraft there. In fact, I wish I had a chance to just fly them just as a pilot, you know, and getting the experience of a pilot to fly some of those planes. The uh, German aircraft, they're a little different than ours, and the, the cockpits were a little different, and... 
some of the flying characteristics were slightly different, but they had they had good aircraft, very good aircraft. Have you had a chance uh, in recent years to go up in any of the newer planes or in jet planes, or have you flown any? I've been as a uh, uh, passenger in the fighter uh, jet planes there, but uh, when you talk about going into the uh, fighters there, uh, I, I, I do fairly frequently get up. And at uh, 94 years old, I was uh, up in a P-51 just about uh, nine months ago. Fantastic. And this was a P-51 that uh, was modified, and they had two seats put in the cockpit there with dual controls. Wow. So that uh, I could handle controls. So I had a lot of fun going up there and doing a couple of loops and slow rolls and uh, just a lot of fun. Where was that? Where's that house? This was, this was down in Atlanta, Georgia, at the uh, Peachtree Airport down there. And uh, this was a, a group called the CAF that owns a couple of P-51s there. And uh, uh, they had their, uh, one of their instructor pilots uh, flying the plane, but uh, he took it off. And then after he got to altitude, they, he turned the trolls over to me, and he says, well, do what you want, you know, so <laughs> that was fun. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin, or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. What was it like to return to the States after the war and still face discrimination? I mean, you guys must have been flying high with all you'd accomplished. And now you come back to the States and yes, describe it, what that was like. It was the same old, same old. Nothing, nothing had changed. And, of course, that was a, a big dis disappointment. And I decided I knew there were no uh, African-Americans flying in the airlines there. But I, I said... If you don't try, uh, you're never no. get there. Yep. So they're never going to get there. So uh, I did try with a couple of airlines, and uh, I was uh, rejected, and uh, uh, that was it. But uh, ultimately, uh, uh, the African Americans, uh, these airlines, these same airlines, did accept the African Americans, and today they they do have them uh, in the airlines there, and it. it it goes back to what I had mentioned at the beginning of the program here is that uh, a fallback position. And what I did at the time there is I decided that it was time for me to take this fallback position of going back to school, getting my degree in engineering and uh, following another uh, course of life. But of course, with that, I, I still was able to, you know, have do my dream by uh, still flying a little bit. And at 81 years old, I uh, decided to add to my pilot's license there, and I got a uh, commercial glider pilot's license, and I started flying glider pilots around and taking up local kids in the neighborhood to give them an idea of what it's like in the sky to fly and hoping that this might inspire them to go ahead and seek uh, some type of uh, work in the uh, aviation uh, industry, because the opportunities are there that uh, I didn't have at the time, and you know this could be a beginning uh, to their developing a dream and going into aviation. And I enjoyed flying with those kids. I, I just just loved you know just the response that I get. I I tell this story uh, about uh, taking the kids up, and maybe in in one day on a Saturday or something like that, I. Uh, uh, it was a two-place plane, one with the pilot and one with the kid, and uh, maybe I'd been flying maybe five or six kids, That and by the end of the day there, I, uh, uh, I have one kid that I'm going to fly, and, uh, uh, you know, these youngsters, they learn so fast. They're handling the stick, they're handling the rudder, and the next thing you know, in 10 minutes, they're able to hold the plane pretty steady and able, so... What I would do on that last flight there, I would say to the youngster, I said, well, you know, you're doing so fine. I said, you're handling this so well, and you keep the plane. Just do what you're doing there, and 
I'm really tired after this long day. I'm going to bed and take a little nap here. And uh, and the kid's eyes would get just as big as that, you know, I can't believe this, I guess he's saying. And of course, I've got my eyes on it, you know. And uh, when we get on the ground, you know, he hops out of the plane and he runs up to his parents, Mom, Dad! He let me fly the plane by myself, and you know what? He went to sleep <laughs> while I was flying. Uh, yep. <laughs> and it's easier to convince parents of that when you get older, too. So, yeah. <laughs> I, know the, I know the feeling. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to skip over. You've had a very, you've had a wonderful business career since uh, getting out of the military. Can you kind of describe what you've been involved in? I, I was with uh, 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 a few companies, uh, two that I think of specifically, and one is uh, Bechtel Corporation out in uh, San Francisco. It's an international uh, engineering and construction firm, and uh, very gratifying in that uh, I got to go on projects throughout the world uh, that they were working on. And then uh, I was uh, a headhunter, uh, grabbed me later on and uh, said, uh, we have an opening in the uh, plant in Michigan, in Detroit, Michigan, and it's a uh, pipeline, a very, very large pipeline company. And uh, I, I decided to go with them, and that's where I retired. But uh, both those jobs are very gratifying, and, and uh, they, they let me have my... Uh, my head, the reins as far as the job was concerned, and uh, yeah, I finished up with the last job as a vice president of the uh, of the company, uh, vice president of administration, and that that was it. I would like you to describe the day you were honored in Washington D.C. in the I believe it was in the Capitol Rotunda. Could you and describe that was, day? Yes, we were uh, invited. And uh, my wife and I, we were invited to the uh, Capitol building, and uh, we were to meet uh, a, a number of the senators that they had there, and also some of the uh, White House staff, and uh, that would be George Bush, and uh, I, I personally had the honor of having him shake my hand and stand right next to him up on the uh, podium there and deliver a slight talk there. And he was a jolly guy to go ahead and talk to. As soon as I stood up next to him, he started poking me in the side with his elbow there like he's enjoying the crowd here, you know. So real comfortable guy to be with, you know. But anyway, uh, another one was uh, uh, Robert Byrd, who was from uh, Virginia there, you know. And uh, what a pleasure it was to talk to him and... uh, he was an arch segregationist as a young man and uh, a member of the Ku Klux Klan and, you know, that type of thing. And uh, at, later on in life, he made an about face there as far as that's concerned and became, uh, you know, a real, a real friend to the uh, African-American citizen. Do you think relations today have improved a lot since the Abs- mid-40s? Oh, yes, yes. And where do you see yes. it the most? Well, I, I, I see it uh, most probably in industry. I mean, we have captains of, uh, of uh, huge business organizations now that are African-American. Uh, as far as my field and the service is concerned, I see it a, a lot in the airlines. In fact, I guess it was uh, a number of years ago, maybe three or four years ago, uh, I was taking a uh, Delta aircraft, uh, a passenger in a Delta aircraft from, I forget where it was, somewhere in Virginia to somewhere in Kentucky or something like that, I forget. But anyway, while I was aboarding the plane there, I looked in the cockpit, and there are these two African-Americans sitting in the cockpit there. That's the pilot and the co-pilot. And that's not the end of the story. Guess what? They were both female. <laughs> just amazing you know that's right yes so yes i've seen these changes take place in in, in so many places you know and uh, uh, as i said in industry and uh, being in industry and uh, uh, being in the corporate world myself i had seen those changes take place and you know just 
big, very big, big changes. And sometimes they're not uh, advertised or shown as much or displayed as much, but they're, they're there. And uh, there are opportunities, and I'd like our youth to know that, you know, there are opportunities for them, and don't uh, don't use the excuse that, well, they're not going to hire me or that type of thing, you know. Get the dream and go after it, you know, and work hard for it, and uh, don't try to get by with, uh, uh, you know, try to uh, uh, maintain excellence in all that you do. What role did the Tuskegee Airmen play in the desegregation of the U.S. Air Force? I think they played a uh, primary role in it. When the integration was declared, you know, just a month before that, the three representatives, three pilots from the 332nd Fighter Group or the Tuskegee Airmen won the first United States Air Force fighter gunnery meet that was held out at uh, Las Vegas Air Force Base, now Nellis Air Force Base, uh, in Nevada. And uh, this was, they had won the best, or had become the best among the best. And not to say that the African-American pilots were better than other pilots or anything like that. They had their day uh, as far as uh, uh, winning the uh, contest was concerned, better known in the Navy as, uh, uh, as Top Gun. But uh, they, uh, they had their day there at Las, Las Vegas. And I think that, that the powers that be took a look at that situation and said, look, we're wasting a lot of money with this segregation, and number two, we're compromising the abilities of a lot of people with this segregation here like this. Let's do away with this, and let's go after an Air Force that's going to be the best and is going to accept all, as you know. And uh, soon afterwards, uh, the other services followed, so I think it was a test that uh, proved itself to be, you know, beneficial, that was uh, that of the Tuskegee Airmen. It was guys like you who really, it was guys like you, it was guys like Jackie Robinson who really broke their way up through the ranks the hard way, and they held to their dream. And uh, we all owe you a debt of gratitude for what you put up with. Oh, and thank you. it's good to see that there's been so much positive change. Colonel, you know, Colonel, I was hoping you could share the story with me about being outgunned by a young lady in a yes, fighter plane. Yes, yes, yes. Anyway, I uh, I was still training and taking fighter training in, uh, 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 I'm sorry, I was taking it in Walterboro, South Carolina. And uh, I was flying P-47s at the time, and that was the last plane I would fly before going overseas. But anyway, during the end of the uh, training that I was taking there, we were usually assigned a cube of space in the sky. You know, it might be so many miles wide, so many miles high, and so many miles long. And that was your space where you could do what you wanted in that space and not worry about the other aircraft. However, if another aircraft came through that space there, you considered that space as being sacrosanct and this person had no business of being in there. So what you would might do is challenge them and say, how dare you try to come through my airspace? And, you know, I'm the king of this airspace. And you have their signals that you can use, like the way you rock your wings and things like that to say, let's get into a mock dogfight. And the mock dogfight being nothing but to see who can get on the other's tail. And... Your idea would be to keep that person from getting on your tail, from shooting at you, and the idea is you to get on their tail so you can shoot at them. Of course, this is just mock warfare, that's all. So anyway, uh, the strange P-47 was coming through the territory there, and I challenged it. And I rocked my wings, and we got on into what's known as this Loughberry. We were turning, trying to get on one of the tails, and before I know it, this plane had gotten on my tail, and of course, I gave up. I said, okay, you got me, you shot me down. You know, I could signal it with my, what I did with the wings of the plane there. So this person headed, straightened up, and uh, started heading back towards the air base where I came from there. And 
I was heading in the same direction. So uh, this person finally got to the air base and they landed. And I got to the air base and I landed. And uh, this person taxied up to the revetment and uh, I taxied up to the revetment not too far away from them. And they stood up in their cockpit there and took their hand up and took their helmet off and this flaming red hair fell down around the girls. Just, she was a, a, uh, uh, a woman's auxiliary Air Force pilot. Wow. And she was ferrying, ferrying aircraft. There were about 700 and some of them during the war. And they were like the Tuskegee Airmen. They were in a lot of cases not wanted and things like that because they were female and kind of destroyed male ego and that type of thing with the great flying that they were doing. But uh, anyway, that cooled me down a lot as far as uh, I was concerned there. I was shown a thing or two as far as this young lady was concerned. Had the, had the big joy of meeting a lot of her compatriots uh, a year and a half ago out at the Oshkosh. Uh, Wisconsin, which is, you know, the foremost air show that they have in the United States here, and a contingent of those uh, women who were flying uh, at the time were there. So I, I got a chance to speak to them and talk about this incident. That, uh, that <laughs> Fantastic. Colonel, could you describe the time that you bailed out uh, and landed in Butcher Hollow? Yes. I love that story. I was on my way back from... Uh, from uh, South Carolina, from Shaw Air Force Base to my base in uh, Columbus, Ohio. Uh, I had gone down there to uh, join a group to uh, put on some uh, maneuvers, uh, Army uh, Air Force maneuvers. And uh, I did have some ammunition on the plane coming back. I had uh, quite a few rounds of uh, 50 caliber machine gun bullets on the plane. Anyway, I ran into a terrible thunderstorm and uh, I started having engine trouble and to make a long story short it ended up with my bailing out and the plane uh, hit the ground uh, near uh, in Butcher Hollow about 100 yards from the uh, house or the cabin that uh, Loretta Lynn was born in and uh, I landed uh, or maybe a half mile away uh, a mile away uh, on the hillside. It was raining very, very heavily. Uh, I was injured. I had uh, broken my leg, and, but I was safely on, on, on the ground. Uh, a young girl saw me, evidently five-year-old uh, girl, and told her father, this eagle just landed up on the hill up there, and uh, he got a horse, and uh, uh, he was on a horse, and he brought an empty saddled horse and uh, came up on that hill. And when he saw me, if you could see the expression on his face, <laughs> had, I probably had the same kind of expression on my face. You know, that's the last thing you would dream of seeing is this African-American sitting up there in a flying suit on the hill. So it was amazing. So the, the whole countryside started turning out, you know, as I was going uh, back to his cabin, and I uh, was just treated royally. But what brings this up is uh, many, many years later, uh, this happened in 1948, I think it was, and many years later, around 2005, a young man by the name of uh, Danny Blevins called me from Van Leer, Kentucky, and he said he'd been searching to find the history of my bailout there and just what the facts were. And he said there were so many rumors going around as to what happened. He didn't know what to believe. And I said, what were the rumors? So he said, the rumor was a black man stole a B-52 and he was on a bombing raid over the town and they called up the American jet fighters and they shot him down. Well, I fell <laughs> off my chair just, just laughing, you know, how rumors can go. It sounds typical how rumors can go, you know, and how they can build up. But, you know, it was a year later that I was invited to uh, Van Leer, Kentucky, and they made me the uh, parade marshal of their homecoming. And I had the most delightful five days there in Kentucky in the backwoods there that you that you can ever imagine. So very nice, and, a yes. good a good ending to that. Yes, it was a good ending to that one. Do you have any other good stories or anecdotes that we can cover? Well, let's see. 
Well, I know when I used to come back, I was thinking about these missions that we were on. They would be uh, long-range missions, and uh, the longest one I can think of that we were on was uh, a mission to uh, Berlin, which was six and a half hours. But it wasn't, wasn't necessarily that mission, but a mission similar to it. The P-51, a fighter plane, was a, the ones in World War II were very small and uh, had very cramped cockpits there. And even a guy my size, uh, who I was five foot eight, and uh, I don't think I was any more than 140 or 145 pounds, uh, I was really cramped in there along with all of the paraphernalia, the life raft and uh, uh, life vest and uh, other things that I might wear. And because of the cold altitude, the layers of clothes and that type of thing. So I see all this to say that during the flight there, my, my uh, seat would uh, get very, very, very tired. It started aching, you know, and I didn't think a person sitting down in one spot for a long time could have their rear ache as much as it could. And what I would do was coming back off the mission sometime, if we were in a phase where they were releasing us from the bombers there and they were saying that you can go and uh, uh, find your way back home now, uh, I would turn the aircraft on its back, upside down, and I would hang by the seat belt, and it was like somebody giving me a back a massage, and I'd just say, ah, this is delightful. <laughs> I couldn't stay that way very long, but that was one of the things that I could remember in, uh, in, in flying those long missions like that. One of the things I really appreciated in your story was the number of times you referred back to your flight crews in terms of how important these guys were to the mission, whatever it was. Can you remember any of the key people that you really became close with, guys that you felt you owed your life to? Well, yes, there's my crew chief, no question about it. I depended on him wholeheartedly for the safety in that plane. And as far as I was concerned... Uh, I used to sort of defer to him and say, this is your airplane, you know, and you're giving me permission to go ahead and fly it. And, of course, that would make him feel good, but it was true, is that while I'm in the sack, you know, sleeping and that type of thing, he's under that plane dropping the uh, wing tanks or doing this to the engine out in the cold weather and that type of thing. There was no hangar to be in. He was out in the open there, so... Uh, he he has to deserve a lot of credit. And then there are the other support personnel that are over there because, you know, it's like we talk about Tuskegee Airmen and you want to find out, well, how many of these guys were there? Well, I can give you a figure, like uh, maybe 15,000. And you say, my God, where did, they, where did they come from? Or that type of thing. Well, I'm talking about uh, cooks, doctors, nurses, bottle washers, truck drivers, mechanics, everything that's required to go ahead and uh, keep the plane flying. And uh, they used to use an empirical formula, like uh, formula, like uh, there would be somewhere like 12 or 13 people just to support one aircraft, one fighter plane there. So that's why we say anybody that was involved with that type of operation, and they were absolutely critical, uh, we call them Tuskegee Airmen. And... Uh, we have the combat pilots, and they were just a few of them, and uh, of, of the combat pilots that we had in the 332nd of the Tuskegee Airmen, uh, about 531 uh, went overseas in the combat. Something like 80 uh, lost their lives overseas, 35 were taken as prisoner of war, shot down, taken as prisoner of war, seven were what they call escapees, they were shot down over enemy territory, but managed to get back home without being captured uh, by the uh, enemy. And can you imagine a black person in Europe being shot down and uh, being able to get out of the country without being discovered? You know, that's, that's pretty good. That's very good. The name Tuskegee Airmen, uh, there's, that's no official name uh, whatsoever. What that how that came about is that there was a, a doctor by the name of, uh, last name was Charles, who wrote a book called The Tuskegee Airmen back in 1972. And for want of a title, he said, what did I use? He says, well, all of them trained down at Tuskegee, Alabama. So I called them the Tuskegee Airmen. And that's how that name, good. 
I think we've about got it. Is there anything you'd like to wrap up with? What happens if uh, it'll be 2 o'clock in the morning, you know, and I'll jump out of bed and I say, yeah. oh, I should have told them that's oh, it. Me too. Believe me. Right. Yeah, me so, too. I'll be doing the same thing on the drive <laughs> on the drive back to the office. I'll be, ah, easy. A pleasure meeting you. you. You've got a friend forever. And, uh, and I got you. a hunch I'll be seeing you in the next uh, few I weeks or so. months. I want our listeners to know how much this book, Soaring to Glory, is a fantastic read from the first page to the last. It's well, Soaring to Glory, a Tuskegee Airman's first-hand account of World War II by Lieutenant Colonel Harry T. Stewart, Jr. All I can say is it's a fantastic book, and I want to thank you so much for being with us today, and I want to thank you so much for your service, for being an inspiration to so many people. Thank you, Colonel. And thank you so much for having me on your program. I've really enjoyed it. Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. Whether your pursuit involves a bachelor's, master's, or doctoral degree, GCU's learning environments are designed for supportive networking and collaboration. With over 330 academic programs, GCU provides a path to help you fulfill your dreams. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu.